invite you to be turning to Micah chapter 4. And we're going to be covering six and a half verses today. Because last week we ended in the middle of verse 2. We ended really on Micah turning a corner in his book from another state of judgment. And we were just heading into another statement of hope and leaning into the coming of the Messiah. And that is what Jesus accomplishes. But by way of pertinent background, we, we came into the first part of Micah 4, the very first half, and the very first half of Micah 4 too, and we, we heard the words, uh, in the last days, <clears throat> the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. Peoples. We'll stream to it, and then the first part of verse 2 again. And many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And we looked into the book of Hebrews, in which the author of Hebrews states at the very beginning of his letter that even in his present time he saw that it was, quote, the last days. And I stated that you and I are fulfilling part of this prophecy, fulfilling this prophecy in Micah 4, in that I don't think any of us are Jewish, but rather we are part of the peoples, part of the many nations that are flocking to the God of Israel, who is now exalted and lifted up and basically has exploded the mindset back in those days of a national God into an inter- national God, that is, we don't serve an American God, we serve the only one true God who came from the Jews and has ascended into his rightful place of God over the world in which people are flocking to him. That's my uh, last week's second half of the sermon in a nutshell, and to get you thinking about this week's message, I have a question for you to be pondering And that is, what are God's people to be doing? What is required of the Christian? And what do you think is required of the church today, both locally and internationally? And that's my question for you to be pondering in these moments as we begin to do our sermon today, to do our study. And with those questions swirling around in your mind, maybe some answers uh, cropping up to some of those questions. I invite you to be standing in honor of reading the word of the Lord today. <clears throat> We're going to be reading from the middle of verse 2 and go all the way into verse 8. Again, of Micah chapter 4. <clears throat> Micah chapter 4, beginning in the middle of verse 2. Talking about the God of Jacob, we begin reading and hearing He will teach us about his ways, so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. 
But each man will send <clears throat> under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has promised this. Though all the peoples each walk in the name of their gods, we will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God, forever and ever. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered those I have injured. I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forever. And you, watchtower for the flock, fortified hill of daughter Zion, the former rule will come to you, sovereignty will come to daughter Jerusalem. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we look into this ancient prophecy, and I know and I believe that it is fulfilled and in some way still being fulfilled, I pray that you would use this prophecy to influence and instruct us even now and today in our personal lives and in the lives of us as a church. And I just pray that your words would be heard, not mine, that your spirit would have complete and total reign, and that you would be speaking to each and every heart that would obey um, actively what you are telling us to do. Help me personally where I am hesitant or ignorant or resistant to where I want to act. Um, help me to be repentant and obedient to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Pastors have made the point, and I think I have made the point here, of a general change between the Old Covenant and the new, of the old temple religion and the new temple, that is Jesus' religion, and that is the worship of our God has gone from come and see to go and tell. Um, if you wanted to worship the one true God in Old Testament times, you had a lot of stuff in the way. First off, to be biologically Israelite was your best case scenario. But if not, the Old Testament laws do have exceptions and provisions made, but you had to come to the holy nation of Israel, you had to come to Jerusalem, you had to come to the temple and make sacrifices, you had to come to see the priest and the mediator, you had to come and see. Jesus, forever setting the precedent from his entrance into human history, was to go and tell. He came from heaven going to earth. He was born and he went out and told everyone that the kingdom of God is at hand or is near. He told people to repent. The gospel accounts tell us that he went all over ancient Palestine, even outside of accepted Israel a few times, to the Samaritans, to the Gentiles. And upon dying for the sins of humanity, he rises and he commissions his disciples, basically, go and tell. It is no longer a come and see invitation. It's a go and tell mission, or to go and tell. This church, lowercase c and referring to the building, exists because some Quakers responded to go and tell. They left Kansas. They came here. They've been telling and we are the recipients. Maybe not all of us are the direct recipients of the blessing of salvation, though I believe some here today are. 
but surely recipients of the Christians before us, and we enjoy the fellowship here of believers who understand what, understands what it means to be go and tell. And in order to go and tell, that involves a trek, a T-R-E-K. We need to trek out into the world to answer the calling of go and tell. God, through Micah, re, uh, excuse me, Micah, I should say, receives a glimpse from God of the messianic age, and that is the age after our King Jesus came and set the precedent of what his people will look like <clears throat> on their trek. Generally speaking, as we trek through this passage, we know that the kingdom of God's people will be a kingdom of teaching, reconciliation, and I had to make this third one stretch to make the E and trek work, but nevertheless it will be an effective kingdom, and lastly it will have definite kingship, a kingdom with teaching, promoting reconciliation, effective, and understanding and submitting to kingship. So after Micah prophesies of a day where beyond national Israel, the worship of Yahweh transcends Israel and is worshipped and adored rightly as the God who made all people, and thus is worshipped by many peoples, again, as Micah says, many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. The first thing this glimpse tells us is that this is a kingdom of teaching. He will teach us about his ways so we <clears throat> may walk in his paths for instruction will go out of Zion in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. <clears throat> I've made the point before, but we live in such a paradoxical age. You see, we have easily the most access in all of Christian history, to God's Word and those whom God has given the gift and the Spirit to teach it, and at the same time, at least it seems to me from what I've read and among Americans, we have an unprecedented and an inexcusably high biblical illiteracy. We're reading through Proverbs every Sunday, and we're hopefully getting the picture that God places a high value on godly wisdom. God has given us a huge gift in his word. We are in, invited to learn from him. I'm reminded of uh, Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10, and Jesus comes to their house, and Martha is undoubtedly doing something very necessary. She's preparing the house for hospitality. She's preparing a meal, and she gets upset because there is Mary just listening to Jesus teach. And what does God say? Mary's chosen the right thing to do here. I know what's going to happen after Jesus finishes his teaching. How or when will dinner get served? When will the beds be made up? Will Jesus and his disciples just uh, starve then? At least they heard Jesus preach. Is that what Jesus is most concerned about? 
And the point is, in our idealized American get-or-done mentality, Jesus places a high value on growing from teaching and instruction. Now, <clears throat> I'm in the Bible a lot for church, studying for my sermons, studying before Bible study on Friday or Sunday morning. But I learned from my mentor early on that I should try to differentiate from what I'm teaching on from my personal Bible study. Uh, see, I'm just like all of you. A lot of you have work to do. Some may have 9 to 5. Many of you are retired, I know, but you have to be in your tractor. Well, just simply because you're driving your tractor and I'm in my office, we're still both doing work. And like you, how you should be in the Bible, apart from being in your tractor, maybe you're listening to Christian radio, <clears throat> nevertheless, I should be studying personally, because the idea is that the Lord might have something different to say to me on my personal journey than he may have to say to all of us communally. But, <clears throat> with all my Bible studying for church and for time with Calvin and other tasks that I have throughout the day, it's easy for me to justify at times, well, the Lord understands. I don't have the time. And I think the point is, from Mary and Martha's story, very profoundly, is make time. It's that important. Sometimes to make time means it will be sacrificial. And by sacrificial, it means there will be things that you and I think are important, uh, necessary, and it will be a sacrifice to say, that can wait. I need my time with Jesus. Do you hear that? It's important enough in Jesus' mind to put dinner on the table a bit later, to put Mary and Martha's hospitality on hold until the teaching is done, then the point is for you and me is to be in our Bibles, to be hearing the Word of God, to make it a priority, to put it a bit higher than most Americans want to put it, because to put it in biblical language, to do without it, is to starve yourself, and at the same time is to grow spiritually obese. Paul says it to a young pastor, almost as my mentor said it to me, train yourself in godliness, for the training of the body has a limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. In fact, we labor and strive for this because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of everyone, especially of those who believe. You hear that? He just said that to train in godliness, that is to grow in faith, and one of the ways of doing that is the instruction of the Lord, is more important than bodily health. Now, this isn't supposed to enable you to shirk off good physical health, but it goes to show the importance that God places on his teaching. It's a kingdom attribute, teaching. And because it's a go-and-tell kingdom, it's a kingdom that started with the apostles in Jerusalem and scattered abroad, at the onset of this kingdom being realized that Micah prophesied about, again, he says, for instruction will go out of Zion 
and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Reminds me of the Great Commission. So it's a kingdom that's going tell, and while it, while it is trekking outward, it's a kingdom of teaching, and it's a kingdom of reconciliation. <clears throat> he will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. In the immediate context of Micah's time, this is something to bank hope on. God was declaring judgment on Judah in Micah chapter 3. And he said, they don't know what is just. They hate good and love evil. He also said that they abhor justice and pervert everything that is right, and they build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. And so King Jesus comes and he sets things right. He will settle disputes among many people and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. How does this happen in the church, you might ask? A very telling picture comes from an article I read this last week. It it comes from a girl in California who writes, My name is Masha. I am from Iran. I want to tell my story about how I became a believer. Everyone, everybody born in Iran is a Muslim. You don't have any choice not to be Muslim, to be a Christian or some other thing. I saw so many people killed. Innocent people being killed in my country. The educated people. The people the age of me. I was thinking, how could God be like this? So much hatred, so much brutality. They were saying the name of God, but they were killing people. When I came here, I wasn't a believer. Before I became a believer, something bad happened to my family. My brother-in-law got cancer. I was worried about my family, my sister. When he, my brother-in-law, found out, he was crying and it was a bad moment for me. Maybe I said to people, I don't believe in God, but in my heart I felt something about God. After that, maybe three months later, one of my friends explained and introduced Jesus to me. It was the first time I had heard the story about who Jesus was and what his message was. I read John 3.16 that God sent his beloved son to us, and if we believe in him, we have eternal life. At the moment I believed that, God came after me and called me. He wanted to say, I am here. I love you and I care about you. When Islam came to my country, it killed so many people. The brutality and anger, nothing about love and kindness, the things I see in Christianity and Jesus and in his message. I came to Grace City Church and it was a miracle for me. Then the author of the article writes, Masha has continued to grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ, declaring her faith in him by expressing an outward act of baptism on May 6, 2018. Only in Jesus can a Muslim from Iran join hands at a local church in California with Americans. What would break down barriers? Jesus reconciled. It's a picture also of us being Gentiles being let into worship. We are reconciled with our fellow human beings in Christ, as Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, the world is reconciled to each other. 
That's his kingdom. It's a kingdom of teaching. It's a kingdom of reconciliation. And here's where I stretched it to fit our acronym of TREK, T-R-E-K. But it is a kingdom that is effective. We read, they will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation. And they will never again train for war. But each man will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has promised this. If I had my way and we didn't have to have an acronym, peace or peacemaking would more accurately describe the attribute of this of the kingdom. God's kingdom is a kingdom of peace. <clears throat> but because it's a kingdom of peace and peacemaking, it is also effective. It's effective because instead of making weapons of death to kill each other, which is counterproductive, they're making tools of cultivation and working for each other. So we see this is a communal peacemaking, a communal effectiveness in the kingdom of God. A few things here and a few interpretations here. First, as I preached last week, I believe God through Micah is talking about a reality that is taking place now. I brought up two passages from Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews 12 saying, we're in the last days now and we come to Mount Zion now. However, I know you might say, well, it seems to me that there are still nations taking up swords against nations, which would seem to counter, would seem to be opposite to what this is portraying here, and I, and I get that. Just follow me for a few minutes. Furthermore, I want to make a preface and say that if you disagree with my interpretation, I won't feel like my birthday's been taken away. You're more than welcome to believe what you want to believe about this passage. If it's a future, a worldwide reign of Christ in the millennium after some end in human history that we have yet to see, I believe this passage is being fulfilled right now as well as all the way into the future. It's an ongoing fulfillment. But the reason I take Micah chapter 4 to be about the church is primarily, A, what I mentioned about Micah 4, 1 through 2. That is, I see Christ is already exalted above the idea of just being Israel's God. He's the world's God. Many are flocking and streaming to him. Uh, secondarily, we're going to see in one verse later, Micah say, Though all the peoples... Each walk in the name of their gods. We will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. And the original language suggests that each phrase is simultaneously occurring at the same time. So as Young's literal translation would put it, for all the people do walk, each in the name of its God, and we, we do walk in the name of Jehovah our God to the age and forever. So at the same time in human history that Micah is prophesying about, which I believe is now and has been since the church began, is Micah is talking about a time where there are people who walk in the name of their own gods, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, atheism, etc., their, their own gods, and there are people, the remnant, gathered from many nations and peoples, who walk in the name of our God, Yahweh. 
And so that's what compels me personally to hold the view I take. And if that is truly the case, that what Micah is talking about, what do I do with, nation will not take up sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. I think God through Micah is talking about realities within, within his kingdom, not outside of his kingdoms. If you are a believer, you and I are part of a kingdom that will ultimately be victorious and the only one, the only kingdom remaining at the end of the world. But we're still spreading, we're still trekking into the world. And as we re-read and recall from Galatians, God is not for nationalities because Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, all are one in Christ's kingdom. Our allegiance is first, foremost, utmost to our King Jesus. And so when we meet him face to face, when the not yet realities of our kingdom finally catch up with the finally here, I do not believe that God's going to have, you know, Americans, you're here, Mexicans over here, Israelis, you're over there, Quakers, you sit up on the phasing benches, and Baptists, you're over here, and Nazarene. The point being is nation is not fighting against nation in God's kingdom because, as we just read, an Iranian gal, once familiar with the so-called God of Islam, who knew only war and hatred and coerced conversion, but now this Iranian gal is not working to war against her community of believers, but hopefully, by God's grace and His Spirit, the Iranian gal has a new identity in Christ with the rest of the Christians, and together they're working to make a better kingdom where their backgrounds, nationalities, and maybe even denominational backgrounds don't matter. Woodland Friends is full of people of different logic, <clears throat> different theological stripes, the pastor included. Sometimes I wonder if I have a tendency to be cut open and see that the blood I bleed is more Nazarene or, you know, and might now maybe more Quaker than Christian. Is the blood you bleed more Quaker than Christian, more Baptist than Christian, more Lutheran, more Mennonite, more Church of God, more home church? See, we don't come here. We shouldn't come here to impose our background traditions on others. We come here to unite under God and be an effective witness for Him. And so as Christ's kingdom comes into contact with those who are rebelling against the growing kingdom of Christ, we find that they are still trying to war. Micah's prophecy here is, is <clears throat> almost identical, if not truly identical, to a contemporary prophet of his day, Isaiah chapter 2, 1 through 4. You're welcome to look that up later and smirk and say, wow, it's that. It seems like God saw this messianic hope so important that it was coming out of the mouth of two prophets in the same time. However, <clears throat> this phrase, swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives, is actually reversed, coming out of the mouth of another prophet namely Joel. Joel, chapter 3, recounts a judgment against the nations. The interesting thing about Joel is that <clears throat> no one agrees when his ministry was. Um, some see it as far as early, even before King David, 
or some see it as far late as long after the exile and the return to Jerusalem, which means the events of his book are being fulfilled, that are being fulfilled or disagreed on too, when they were fulfilled. Yet, <clears throat> under this judgment against the nations, an interesting phrase that Joel uses in context here in Joel chapter 3, uh, verses 9 through 11, <clears throat> proclaim this among the nations, prepare for holy war, rouse the warriors, let all the men of war advance and attack. Beat your plows into swords and your pruning knives into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am a warrior. Come quickly, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves. Bring down your warriors, their Lord. So here we have Joel reversing the phrase, take tools of cultivation and production and beat them into weapons of death. <clears throat> it's because it's judgment on unbelieving nations, on nations against God outside of the kingdom, because to be outside of the kingdom is to be outside of the blessings that Christ brings, namely what we're talking about, reconciliation and peacemaking. Community effectiveness in the kingdom of God and personal effectiveness and personal peace. That's what Micah goes on to say. He talks about the personal peace of each man will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has promised this. The grapevine and fig trees were really two of the most important fruits of an ancient Israelite garden. The grapevine was also a symbol of a sedentary life because it took so long for good grapes to be produced. The fig was known for its sweetness, and so for each man to sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him kind of extends the previous metaphor of having no war and that in personal relationships and on the home front, in the garden, uh, people can focus their attention to stability, longevity, instead of worry about tips and arguments. No longer, unlike what Micah was prophesying against in the chapter prior, where social elites and leaders would come and steal land, use and abuse their citizens, in God's kingdom we have a kingdom unshakable, incapable of losing an inheritance that cannot be taken. Nobody can pluck us from Christ's hand. <clears throat> so that's what that is about. <clears throat> As we trek out, to spread God's kingdom. It's a kingdom that is wrought with teaching, a reconciliation, where its citizens are effective for the world through peace and harmony. Yet let us never forget that it is a kingdom that has kingship. First, Micah, speaking on behalf of God's people, says in verse 5, Though all the peoples each walk in the name of their gods, we will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God, forever and ever. So we covered this. Again, two simultaneous realities. We even see it today that people this side of Jesus, exalted as God over the nations, still people are wanting to express loyalty and adherence to their own gods, but as for those who surrender themselves to God's kingdom, we will walk in his name forever and ever. Then the Lord speaks through Micah from his side of things in verses 6 through 7. On that day, this is the Lord's declaration, 
I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered. Those I have injured, I will make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forever. We hear this, but how many of us live this? See, our kingdom is made up of outcasts. Our kingdom is made up of the lame and scattered, the injured. The injured. And King Jesus is a king who doesn't lord over his people. He builds up his people. He doesn't take in the vulnerable to manipulate them. <clears throat> he takes them in to make them better. He doesn't hold our sins over us. He forgives us and gives us the power to do and to be better. He doesn't take in the weak because we're easy to be lorded over. He takes in the weak to make us stronger. Are you living this? Am I living this? i got to tell you that, he, that even though I'm in love with the Word of God and I'm in it daily, and though I am a husband and a dad who could not fathom ever not loving my wife or kids, <clears throat> I could never fathom rejecting my wife or kids, I'm still a son of God who wrestles with doubt. I'm still a son of God who thinks that unlike imperfect me, that God is sure a father and a groom to the bride of Christ who might at the drop of a pen leave me. Who might say, that's it, that's the last sin, you're gone, you're banished. When we, give, when we have to give God more credit to him than we give ourselves. Some of the sins I have, I never would abandon, forsake, leave, or neglect my own children if they were guilty of such things. Why do I think God would? Does that make sense? I don't believe God made a kingdom to misuse, abuse, lord over people with fear. He made a kingdom to build a strong nation. He made a, a kingdom where he demands obedience and love as a father does his kids, as a partner hopes and wishes for their, in their spouse. God assembles the lame, gathers the scattered, those whom God has injured. See, those are the people he's looking for. And he's not surprised when we come into his kingdom only to mess up. He's here for the sick, he says in the gospel accounts. But we need to cover this idea with discretion. We Christians seem to be prone to neglect this truth as I have, thinking God's ready to leave me at a moment's notice the next time I sin. Or we seem to abuse this truth. Well, like Kevin said, I'm a parent who could never fathom leaving my kids, so I guess I'll just ignore God and all the parts I don't like and fall back on my blessed assurance every time. And I love it every time I tell Calvin to do something and he decides not to do it, right? Then the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from this time for on and forever. Our God is a ruler. He is sovereign. He's a dad who happens to be the king, and he's our king, which means we should obey him. But he interacts with us as a dad does his kids, as a friend does with friends, as Jesus says. 
We're not servants and slaves, we're friends, but we are friends to a king we ought to command. Let us not hinder, uh, minimize, box in our relationship with Christ as merely be saved and just spend the rest of my life trying to study Him. What I mean by that is, yes, we ought to read our Bibles, yes, we ought to pray, yes, we ought to want to know Him and know Him more, but the knowledge that we have in knowing Christ should produce action. That's what James was about. God does not save anybody to read the Bible the rest of their lives and read it more as they get older so they might feel more righteous because they've graduated to reading two hours every day as opposed to one hour. Or they've graduated reading old dead commentators to go along with their Bibles. Kings give out orders. Uh, you open up to the 11th chapter of Hebrews and you find people commended for their faith, not because they knew lots of scripture and went to church regularly. They answered God when their king called them to do things. We have a ruler. He speaks through his word and through his spirit. And if we want to walk in the name of Yahweh, then by all means, let us walk, not sit. Does that make sense? And you, watchtower for the flock, fortify the hill of daughter Zion, the former rule will come to you, sovereignty will come to daughter Jerusalem. This is a complete reversal of judgment from Micah 3.12, where the judgment was, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become ruined, the hill of the temple mount be a thicket. But through the coming and the salvation found in Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited king, sovereignty will come to daughter Jerusalem. We read this passage from Hebrews last week, but it is so relevant again here, Hebrews 12, 22-24. You have come, present tense, the author talking to Christians, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels in festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn, to whose names have been written in heaven. To God, who is the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous people being made perfect, to Jesus, mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. Again, when you and I gather in this realized messianic age, we may gather physically at locations, but the author informs us that we're gathered with the angels who worship God, we're gathered with the saints of all ages who worship God, and we're gathered to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, our mediator king, whose blood has covered us. That's our king. So we're supposed to be trekking in this kingdom. In Bible college, <clears throat> I was taught to try to present one-point sniper shot sermons, that I was supposed to pick out one thing and hammer that thing with force and precision. That was supposed to be... Um, opposed to shotgun sermons where there's a blast, and though it may not be as effective as a piercing round right where I want it, instead I do proverbial damage to many areas, and I rebelled into a shotgun sermon today. I probably could have done four different sermons, but I thought I'd spare you and help us get through Micah quicker. But as we think about Trek, maybe some of us needed to hear the tea. See, maybe we have a, a schedule, and if we're honest, we give the Word of God an instruction from Him, a bottom priority, 
whenever I get to it. How important is it for us? One way to know how important it is for us is what is the first thing you do in the day? Uh, maybe we go to the bathroom, start some coffee, sure, I get that, but is it then the newspaper? Is it then breakfast with a book I'm reading? Is it a magazine? Often the first thing we do in the morning is what's most important to us. Friends, um, I grab my cell phone and I'm in the habit of checking email and Facebook. Just being honest, I'm struck with the T in Trek. Uh, maybe we need to be reminded of the R in reconciliation. Friends, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. I assure you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. If we're claiming to be citizens in the kingdom of God, we need to be reconcilers, not dividers. Reconcilers. And we need to be effective. Is our work as a believer for my, for me, or for God and others? Is my work as a believer for me or my God and others? Well, I tithe. <clears throat> what do we do with our time? Well, I go to church on, on Sundays. That's one day out of the week. What are we doing the rest, with the rest of our time? Is it being effective and productive for life? Or death? Is it helping our fellow man, or are we helping our own passions and desires and nobody else's? Are we effective in God's kingdom? The only way you will come to honor and desire God's teaching and become a good reconciler and be effective for God's kingdom is to recognize that he is king to begin with. Some pastors say, if I'm a janitor in heaven, I will be happy. And I'm just saying, I get that, but I don't know if that shows humility or defeatism. So in the same token, by God's grace and His Spirit, I don't say those words flippantly, I don't think I ever do, by God's grace and His Spirit, why don't we try to aim a little bit higher than janitor, right? Don't settle for less, but aim higher. God came to earth and died and gave us His Spirit so we can be a janitor in his kingdom? No. But he's a king who strengthens his citizens. I don't mean aim higher as in thinking you'll be able to impress God to get a better merit badge or whatever, but aim higher and that let's put a bit more credibility, let's put a little bit more trust, let's put a bit more understanding and belief in what God can do through us by his grace and spirit and power and what we've been redeemed for. And what may motivates you and me to want his teaching, to be reconcilers, and to be effective kingdom citizens if we know what our king is about. He's not about lording over people. He's not about redeeming the world. 
or he's about redeeming the world, and he's not about being worshipped because he's narcissistic, but being worshipped because that's what he's designed us to do. So in doing so for us, we will be the most fulfilled and most satisfied in doing that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you've given us a kingdom. And most important of all is that your son Jesus is the king. You're the king. Father, in your kingdom, you value teaching. You value your word being in our hearts. In your kingdom, you you value reconciliation. You did not make people so they can war with each other eternally, but you made people to be at peace and unity and harmony with one another under you. Father, you, you made your kingdom that it will be an effective kingdom. In fact, your word tells us that even the gates of hell will, will never prevail against your kingdom. Hell is on the defense because of your kingdom. And Father, in your kingdom, help us to know our king, to know that our king is a king who loves us, who doesn't lord over us, who wants the best for us, which is in him. Father, many of us have been struck with things we need to grow and work on today. Help us to narrow down those many points of things we need to work on into the one point of knowing who our king is, that you will be walking alongside us, you will be guiding us, that your spirit will be prompting us. Help us to be obedient to every prompting you. Ask and tell us to do. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.